the BCP Proffers Podcast, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the Book of Common Prayer, the 1662 edition. I'm Stephen Wedgworth, the rector of Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. We are a parish in the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. So welcome back. This is the second season of our show. I did a reintroduction episode earlier this week, and so you can check that out where I discuss more about what I'm doing in the show, how it's uh, changed a little from last season, and what we plan to do going forward. And so for this episode, we're going to introduce the new year, the new church year, that is. Happy Advent! This week is the first week of the new church season, which begins with Advent and then moves, of course, to Christmas and Epiphany. Now, what is Advent? I didn't grow up with it. I was a Southern Baptist in Mississippi, uh, but as I got older, I started hearing more about it. And even when I was a Presbyterian, Advent was commonly discussed, even uh, practiced as something of a liturgical season amongst uh, Presbyterians and other denominations, which were not historically those which follow electionary. What is Advent? Why is it so popular now? Well, Advent is a fast season, that is a preparatory season that emphasizes repentance and certain other ascetic disciplines in preparation, not merely for Christmas, but for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord. And so it's a season focused on judgment. There's very good scholarship that's been done recently about the history of Advent and Christmas. You'll find out there's a lot debated about it. Christmas was not always celebrated on December 25th. In fact, some of the earlier pieces of evidence show that Christmas was celebrated on January 6th. That's the day we now consider Epiphany. Not a huge deal thematically. Epiphany and Christmas complement one another. Epiphany begins with the wise men, after all. So it's still a very Christmas-oriented season. But it's important to note these distinctions because what we now know of is the four weeks of Advent. Perhaps you've got uh, your candles with one of them pink, the other's purple, and everything has a particular meaning. That's all uh, more recent development. The four weeks of Advent, that was cemented by Gregory the Great in the early Middle Ages. Uh, the four-week candle thing, that's, I think, 20th century. Sorry, guys. Before Gregory, there were other practices. You had six weeks and others. Uh, the Eastern churches would begin sometime in November even, so it varied, and that's okay. Uh, lectionaries and liturgies are created by man and for man, so we don't have to put some absolute meaning and history to them, but they're nevertheless helpful to know. The celebration of Christmas at its current date, we can track down to at least the middle of the 4th century, so that's not as early as other practices. Easter seems to be there from the very beginning, but it's pretty early. The Epiphany uh, date for Christmas goes back even earlier than that. We have evidence in Clement of Alexandria, for example, where he's talking about celebrating the birth of Christ around January 6th. So that would put you in at least the second century. So it makes sense that Christians would mark the birth of Christ, would celebrate it, and would build a larger season around it. 
Now, just a few more words about this, because perhaps you've heard and you're interested. Um, why did they land on this day of the year? Is this really accurate? Uh, wouldn't it make more sense for uh, shepherds tending their fields outdoors to be in a more uh, a warmer part of the year, perhaps? Uh, you hear these arguments. Was Christmas made as a competitor to a pagan celebration, perhaps the Festival of Sol Invictus? Well, the short answer is we don't exactly know. One popular theory is the date of Christmas was calculated based on the date of his death, that there were these early Jewish and early Christian theories that linked up one's death date with one's uh, conception date. And so uh, roughly nine months after his death, they would say that makes for a birth date. Uh, could be um, hard to prove, though, and if it was Epiphany was the actual early date, that would challenge some of the computation. Uh, we don't exactly know. Maybe it was also pairing it with Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a Jewish festival, but it seems to have its roots in the intertestamental period, celebrating the Maccabean Revolt, um, the miracle of the oil lasting during that time of war and testing. Uh, it seems that Jesus and his family uh, keep a winter Jewish festival, which would be Hanukkah. So maybe the Christmas date here was a Christianization of a Jewish practice uh, rather than uh, of a pagan practice. We don't exactly know. Uh, and it's not absolutely important because we're not making a strong claim that we know for sure that this was the date. We're just using it as a date to remember and celebrate. So different theories, but whatever you land on, we can say it's pretty early. Even if you say the middle of the 4th century, well, I mean, that's that's kind of the same time as we get the Nicene Creed. So, significant. Uh, old enough to last, to become universal Christian currency, and it really has stuck. And hey, why not celebrate something like that? To have a time of the year where the whole world is talking about Jesus, whether they know it or not. It's pretty incredible. I remember one time I was at Disney World, Epcot Center, uh, and they had a Christmas carol, sort of live nativity, uh, singing Christmas tree kind of thing. And sure enough, they sang the Christian hymns. And I'm standing there with my family looking around, sea of humanity, shoulder to shoulder with all these folks, you know, giant pretzels in one hand, ices, mouse ears everywhere. And what are we all listening to but a version of Handel's Messiah? The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Amazing. All of these folks hearing the gospel, maybe they don't understand it, uh, but rather than take it away and get rid of it, why not explain it? Why not champion it? So I'm a big fan of Christmas, and I'm a big fan of Advent. I think it's an appropriate way to lead into the season. Uh, it keeps our focus on what Christ's coming was all about. Because, of course, Advent doesn't only mean the first coming, the birth of Christ. It means the coming, the arrival of the Messiah, which in biblical theology also includes events connected with what we think of as the second advent, 
the second coming. So you'll notice the Advent themes largely have to do with judgment, with apocalypse, the end of the world, elements that are often neglected, uh, forgotten by the contemporary Christmas practice. So Advent is a way to celebrate and promote Christmas, but also to give a biblical theology to it in an unmistakable way. And so in the Western church tradition, which has become the the dominant one, certainly for English speakers, uh, Advent now begins uh, four weeks prior to Christmas. Sometimes that's the very end of November. This year it'll be the very beginning of December. And you'll have four weeks, and then Christmas begins on December 25th. Now, one last thing to say about this. Sometimes when you get into liturgy, maybe for the first time, or uh, you're hanging around some overly particular sorts, they'll make a big deal about not conflating the seasons. Oh, this is Advent, not Christmas. Don't sing a Christmas carol in Advent. Don't put the tree up yet. All of that stuff. I am not a believer in that. I think that is going too far. It usually is based on assumptions that prove not to be true, uh, such as that these seasons really were ironclad, fixed, and they were different. Not true. Uh, As we said, Epiphany has a lot of Christmas elements to it. Uh, Christmas has a lot of Advent elements to it. In fact, one of the most famous Christmas carols, uh, most beloved, that uh, most everyone sings all the time during Christmas, Joy to the World, is actually an Advent song. Started off as a paraphrase of Psalm 98. And if you think about the lyrics to Joy to the World, uh, the Lord is come. Well, that's Advent. Advent is a Latin word meaning come, coming, uh, the coming of the Lord. Uh, And this is, let earth receive her king. Wouldn't you know it, that's from the gospel reading of the first Sunday in Advent in the older lectionaries. Matthew 21, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. So Joy to the World is an Advent hymn, but it's okay. You can sing it uh, at your lessons and carol service before Christmas. You can sing it going into Christmas as well. It's all good. So know a little of the history, but don't overdo it. Make the best use of the season to promote the good tidings of the good news, and also to consider how we might be prepared for the coming of the Lord in judgment. And so an appropriate place for repentance, humility, prayer, and worship. Now, this podcast is not just about liturgy and lectionaries. It's about the Book of Common Prayer, and especially the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. I discussed a lot of that in the previous episode, but you should know that the 1662 BCP has its own lectionaries. So liturgy, that's the ordering of the worship, and lectionary is the ordering of the readings, especially the scripture readings. If you just grab a modern BCP, you're going to have a modern lectionary, the revised common lectionary. The 1662, though, had an earlier lectionary, both in its Eucharistic propers, those are different than the modern lectionary, and in its morning and evening prayer 
the first lessons assigned in Advent are different. And so that's going to be the focus of this podcast, and you're going to notice how different it is right out of the gates. Because for Advent 1, we're going to be discussing the triumphal entry. And if you've never read that before at Advent, you're going to say, what? I thought that was for Palm Sunday. And then you thumb through your 1662 lectionary for Palm Sunday, and there is no Palm Sunday. In the 1662, it's Passion Sunday, a a Sunday dedicated to the crucifixion and death of Christ. In fact, at the time of the Reformation, you can see this in Luther, also in Cranmer and others, they threw out the palms. They threw out the ashes. They got rid of all of that because they thought that it was, one, too closely associated to superstitious, sacerdotal notions of blessing material goods and then them retaining some sort of salvific character. So they didn't believe in that. They got rid of that. And they also thought that it unfortunately distracted from the main emphasis. If Palm Sunday is all about triumph, all about the entrance of the king, celebration, where is the cross? And of course, the next Sunday will be Easter, also triumph. And so the cross, which ought to be emphasized, is often neglected. And I've experienced that in the modern liturgical movement churches. Palm Sunday is upbeat, it's celebration. Easter is upbeat and celebration. And so to get the cross emphasis, you pretty much have uh, the Good Friday service. In the older lectionaries, that wasn't the case. You really had a whole week of the cross emphasized, and it began the week prior to Easter. Uh, But That's another episode. Sorry, I'm getting off track. Uh, Back to Advent 1. Why have the triumphal entry here? Okay, sure, you've told me about why Palm Sunday isn't historical, but why the triumphal entry in Advent? Well, think about it. Your king is coming. That's Advent. And what's fascinating is that Cranmer largely retained the historic lectionary, that is, selections that go all the way back to Gregory the Great, Charlemagne's era, but he did make some changes, and he extended the gospel reading of the triumphal entry, using Matthew's version, all the way to the judgment of the temple. Now, wow, that's Advent-specific, isn't it? The coming of the Messiah to judge, and judgment starts in the house of God. So it really makes a ton of sense, even though initially you're surprised, you say, I've never heard of this, what's going on? But wow, it really clicks. This is a clearer and more emphatic emphasis. Another problem with the modern lectionaries is that uh, they've eliminated this reading. And if you look at what they do, um, they essentially start off Advent with the the scripture text and themes which the older lectionary had for the second week. And then their second week is the stuff that would be in the older third week and so forth. And then the fourth week in the modern lectionaries, they actually put the Annunciation there. Now, that's a little bit odd, because in the older lectionaries, you already had the Annunciation, uh, the angel telling Mary she's going to give birth, and that happened about nine months earlier, so back in the spring. Uh, Why are they popping up the Annunciation in December? 
probably two reasons. One, they figure, well, people didn't even go to that annunciation service. It wasn't a normal Sunday. So it got neglected. And they're also wanting to start telling the nativity story in Advent. They're kind of moving you into Christmas already. Whereas in the older prayer book, uh, you're still going to be talking about the Messiah and his eschatological role, even through the fourth Sunday of Advent. And then the the nativity emphasis starts on December 25th. So so those are some of the differences. Um, I know some people are going to be in love with the modern lectionaries, and they're not going to be persuaded. That's okay. We can still be friends. But I'm trying to give a defense of the older approach and why I think it makes really good sense. And if you're thinking about a biblical theology of what the coming of the Messiah is all about, then judgment on the temple makes a ton of sense. So that's where uh, Advent 1 starts in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Now, going forward, we'll have a common outline to our episodes. I'll start with the Collect of the Day. The Collects are short prayers, and the Collect of the Day matches the theme of the week. Then I'll read the epistle, at least part of it, and a part of the gospel. We'll discuss how those connect to the Collect and to one another. Those would appear in the communion service. And then we'll move to the Old Testament readings, which if you're doing this at your church, the Old Testament readings would appear on uh, Sunday morning prayer services. So probably in your experience, you would actually hear the Old Testament reading first, and then later you would get the new. But I'm going to take the Old Testament afterwards because that'll make it easier to explain the relevance and the order logically will fall into place. So we'll do the collect the Eucharistic Propers, and then the Old Testament First Lessons. So here's the Collect for the first Sunday in Advent, and you'll note that it is repeated each week in Advent. So the second week of Advent, you'll get two Collects of the week, and so forth. That means that this Collect summarizes the whole season that was thought to be very important. And this is an original composition of Cranmer. As I said, he often retains material that was already there for centuries before him, but occasionally he writes entire new things, and other times he slightly modifies and alters what he had. This is an original collect. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which thy Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, now and ever. Amen. So this collect really does show you the connection between the first coming and the second coming. Uh, The humility of the first coming, the glory of the second coming. And we're asking God to give us grace to live in light of both comings. That we had put away the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, so that we would be 
able to receive a good verdict and receive life immortal. We want to move out of darkness into light, and so the coming of the light into the world is an appropriate season for that to be especially emphasized again. It's also a time for us to consider judgment and to be extra focused on repenting of our sins. Now, the epistle reading comes from Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. The second half of this was already in the historic lectionary, and it's pretty obviously connected. Uh, Knowing now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So that's an exact connection, makes tons of sense. But the first half of the reading, starting in verse 8, and that's an example where Cranmer uh, extended what he had. And what's interesting here is he starts with verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Cramer doesn't only want to talk about waking up and living righteously, but he wants to show that love is the way to do that. And uh, my great friend, teacher, a member of my church here, Professor Sam Bray, he pointed out to me that Advent begins with an epistle on love, and so does Trinity season. So these are the halves of the church year, first half, second year. They both start with love. Love is the foundation of moral living and sanctification. It's also, though, the summary of the law, and so we have a definition of love. Love is keeping the commandment, isn't it? And so Romans 13 also says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we want to keep the law with a heart and spirit of love, but how do we love? By doing good, not doing ill, treating our neighbor as we would like to be treated. So this is the epistle reading, and frequently the epistle is where you're going to get your moral guidance, your your holy living emphasis in the lectionary. So for Advent, we want to keep the law, but we can only do that with humble hearts of love, seeking the good of our neighbor. Why should we do that? Because the Messiah is coming. Wake up, sleeper. The dawn is approaching. The darkness is going to be dispelled. You can't hide what you've been up to. So confess your sins, show mercy to others, and love God and neighbor. Now, the gospel reading, as we've already mentioned, is the surprising selection of Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. Again, this was already in the Western lectionary. Cramer didn't invent this selection, but he did extend it. 
The older lectionary stopped at verse 8. So essentially the coming of the Lord, uh, the triumphal entry. That's an appropriate Advent theme. The Messiah is coming. But Cranmer extended it to the cleansing of the temple. And so we see that as the Messiah comes, he's also proclaimed to be the prophet. That's where the Sunday next before Advent left us, right? This is of a truth. He is that prophet. So we're repeating that. He is the prophet. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And so, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the prophet. He's the king. But he comes to bring judgment on an unfaithful people, an unfaithful Israel. Just as in the Old Testament, once again, Israel's leaders, those shepherds, have perverted the ways of God. They are worshiping false gods, perhaps not explicitly worshiping idols as they did in the Old Testament, but functionally the same because they are covetous, loving money. They are self-righteous and prideful, trusting in themselves. And here they've turned the temple into a, a house of merchandise, a den of thieves, uh, not prayer for all of the nations. And so Jesus is coming as a righteous prophet, just like those Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, rebuking the covenant people, telling them that they have turned astray, and if they do not repent, they should expect God's judgment. And so as surprising as this selection might be at first, it makes perfect sense for a biblical theology of Advent. Yes, the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will be the king. He will be a new prophet. But he's going to bring judgment. He's going to set things to right. And even in Israel, the mighty will be brought low, and the low will be exalted. So that's what we see in this selection, a very fitting, very appropriate selection, and I think it starts Advent off on exactly the right note. Now, another very, very interesting feature of the 1662 lectionaries is they have proper first lessons in morning prayer. So historically, an Anglican service on Sundays would include both morning prayer and either the full communion service or anti-communion, the first half, and you would then get your propers, your epistles and gospels. Morning prayer has two lessons, Old Testament and New. The New just continues the daily office, which you've been doing throughout the week, but for Sundays, the Old Testament lessons are also propers. That means they are assigned to that day. And that means they match up, they interact with the Eucharistic propers. 
For most of the year, these are going to be consecutive selections through the canonical Old Testament books, Genesis, Exodus, so forth, in order, uh, selecting certain passages and continuing to push the story forward. But there are two exceptions, the beginning and the end. The end is in Proverbs, meditations upon wisdom, uh, maturity, godly rule. And the beginning is here, Isaiah, prophetic book, a book full of prophecies about the Messiah. And so this gives the entire Old Testament a Christological interpretation. We'll be reading Isaiah through Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany season, hearing how Jesus is the fulfillment. And for Advent 1, the first lessons, that is the first lesson for morning prayer, and then in the evening prayer also the first lesson, these come from the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2. And these are incredible selections to further highlight the meaning of the Messiah. So they're not only uh, a generic selection from a book that had something to do with Jesus, but they are specifically about the coming of the Messiah. And as you read them, you'll see that, incredibly, they also interact with the proper readings, in this case especially the gospel. So Isaiah 1, we have the opening of the book. Hear, O heavens, give earth, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And then again, a few verses later, this is incredible when reading it alongside Jesus judging the temple. Isaiah 1.12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, why is God talking this way about his worship? Well, he is the one who asked for these things originally, but the problem is that you cannot offer them and also love iniquity in your heart. And so he's criticizing the externalism, the vain worship, the fact that his people are keeping these ordinances, but not from the heart. Verse 18 makes the point particularly clear. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So God is going to bring a judgment, an examination on his people, showing their sins. But if they repent and acknowledge this, he will forgive. He will turn their crimson to white. 
He will make them pure again, but only if they humble themselves and repent. Verse 21, he says, how the faithful city has become a whore. A theme we see throughout the scriptures, the, the people of God, the faithful city Jerusalem, even the temple is corrupted. And so God has to judge his own. Then there is salvation. And so Isaiah 2, the proper reading for evening prayer. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nation shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Now, isn't this something? After the judgment, a new temple, a mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, a new temple, a new house of the Lord. And the people now want to learn from God, not only Israel, but all of the nations. Isn't that incredible? And so these Isaiah selections match the Eucharistic New Testament lessons, the judgment on the temple, that's pretty obvious, but then learning the ways of the Lord, that's learning as law again. So love is the fulfillment of the law. All the nations now want to know God's law. They want to keep it. That's what's being prophesied here. And the end of chapter 2 is also really incredible, especially if you think about this being um, sort of a Reformation selection. Obviously, Isaiah, that's Jewish literature. It goes way, way back. But these first lessons were actually added to the lectionary during the time of Queen Elizabeth by Archbishop Parker. So they would have also had all of those resonations, those echoes of the, the debates and the theological points of the time. And so Isaiah 2 ends on a very interesting note. Having heard about judgment against faithless worship, having heard the prophecy of a new temple and all nations streaming to it for their salvation, verse 20 says, In that day, Mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, the moles and the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the cliffs of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. The false worship included hypocrisy, love of money and pride, and it also included idols, literal idolatry and false actions of worship. And this was a theme of the Reformation, that both uh, the love of money and the love of idols went together. And so the Christian church needs to be on its guard. Idolatry of the heart and idolatry of, of the hands, of the eyes, of, of the worship service. So, strong polemic against idolatry running throughout Isaiah. And for the Church of England and the Anglican tradition afterwards, they would begin their church year hearing this, to worship the true God in sincerity, 
means putting away all false gods, all idols. If we're going to cast away the works of darkness, we also have to cast away the liturgical darkness and worship God in the light of Christ, the light of his word. How are we going to keep the law if you don't keep the second commandment? So an important thing to notice here in the Isaiah reading, the Messiah will come, he will evaluate the people of God and see if they are sincere. He will judge all hypocrites, even if it comes to it, destroying the city of God and its temple. But then he will bring a new temple. The new mountain of the Lord will appear and all nations will come to it in truth, learning God's law, worshiping him in spirit and truth. So this is Advent 1. This is what it's all about. We need to know the Messiah is coming. So we should evaluate our hearts and our lives. We should cast away our sin and repentance. We should seek the forgiveness of God through the mercy he extends in Christ, and then love God and our neighbor. Almighty God, Give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead we may rise to the life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, now and ever. Amen. This has been the BCP Proper's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm Stephen Wedgworth, the rector of Christ Church Anglican in South Bend, Indiana. Hope you found this episode informative and enjoyable. Hope I've encouraged you to look at Advent anew in light of the Scriptures. And I hope you'll go out and get a copy of the Book of Common Prayer so that you can use this for yourself in your worship. We'll be back again next week, moving forward in Advent with a second week. Hope that you'll tune in and join us. All of the old episodes are still available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and others, and the new ones will be there too going forward. Join us again. Until then, God bless, and uh, if I can, even a little early, Merry Christmas or Season's Greetings. Let us prepare and celebrate the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ. 